All right. Welcome to Autodesk's first live episode of the Digital Builder Podcast. I am your host, Eric Thomas. I have three incredible guests. I am so happy to be here. We are going to be talking all about construction technology and trends in 2023. If you're thinking webinar today, that is most certainly not what you're about to get. There are no slides. We'll have a Q&A at the end of this conversation. And for those of you that are not familiar with Digital Builder to begin with, you can find us on YouTube or check us in any of your favorite podcast players. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. But with that said, let's get into the fun part of this conversation, and I will stop talking. But I'd like to introduce my guests, Andrew Cooper, the VDC engineer with AECOM Hunt, Danielle O'Connell, a senior director of emerging technology at Skanska USA, and Sue Betacharji, director of pre-construction with Herrero Builders. So let's jump straight into the conversation. And Sue, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first. Tell me, what is your favorite tech trends right now and why? I live and breathe pre-construction, so I'm going to start right there. As far as pre-con is concerned, lately, you know, estimating is no longer just going through hard copies of drawings and trying to mark up stuff and measure stuff. It's all digital. So if you have a Revit model, you are able to take it off and also go through assemble and actually use that software to be able to get an estimate right off as you update the model. I think one of the other things that I'm super excited about is just data in estimating. There's a lot of data in there and trying to get that all standardized so that we can actually have a good database to reference as time progresses. More about that later in the conversation, but definitely something that gets me really thrilled and excited. Yeah. And I'm so pleased to see there is such a, a step towards meaningful pre-construction technology as well. So as a former proposal manager who hung up his hat after being a bit burned out from the onslaught of nonstop RFPs, as many of you are very familiar with, there wasn't any technology or focused processes that we could implement in that stage of construction. And so time and time again, 15 minutes before our bid was due, and especially when I was in the federal world, we were gathering all those documents, still trying to make sure there was parity between all the bids and making sure that our pre-construction friends had everything they needed. And it seems like we're slowly trending out of that frustrating world. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And I think data is the other big piece of that conversation. And I'm sure other guests can attest to that. So Andrew, I'm going to throw the hot seat your direction this time. What trends are you most excited about right now in this year and why? Yeah. So for me, it's really, it's, it's AI. AI means something different to everyone, and they're, they're all probably right. But going down, at least for my rabbit hole of it, it's progress tracking on sites. You, with nothing but a camera strapped to your head as you do a walkthrough, which you're going to be, your team's going to be doing every day anyways, you can have a truly accurate representation of the progress of your project. And, you know, it can be completely customized for, for viewing from, you know, you see it referenced in a model. Or you just get simple percentages of completion. And I really think that that's just the tip of the iceberg with AI. And I can just look retrospectively at when we were working on cost adjustments and some of the proposals I touched in just the folder full of digital camera photos from, you know, a 10-year-old yeah. digital camera, not labeled and just this progress towards being able to do that in such a seamless way, but also in a way that's a whole lot 
easier to access and understand than it was in years past. Everything was so very manual. And today, the, the technology, if you set your stack up right now, seems to help everybody else get a little bit closer to the finish line there. Danielle, how about yourself? What trends are you most excited about right now and why? I am going to say reality capture, and that could be 360 photos or laser scanning. But really, the goal is to get that technology in the hands of more of our project teams. And I'm seeing more excitement about that, more realization that it really does add value, whether we're using it for, for measurements or as well documentation, just so much power in those tools. And as Andrew was saying, you know, on top of that, the AI, how we can leverage AI on top of 360 photos, for example, to start looking at our photos into being more proactive around what we're doing. And, you know, with labor shortages, what they are today, we're expected to do more with less. And we really need more eyes on our projects where we can't always have people. And so that is, it's extremely important. And as Andrew was saying, it's very easy to just put a camera on someone's helmet or have them walk around with a selfie stick or their phone and be able to capture this data. Absolutely. I think, Daniel, from that perspective, I think it's priceless, just the value of being able to do the point cloud laser scans. I think from the perspective of doing so many TIs within existing buildings, I have had issues in the past where, you know, the elevator shaft where it used to be and where it is on the new drawings for the new tenant improvement, it, it doesn't match up. And then the teams have to go back and figure it out and understand, oh, what was off? Oh, we were off by two inches. And then it's caused so much problems. On the other hand, with the current technologies available, it's been slam dunk where, you know, we take that laser point cloud and then give it to the architects and we go from there where they have the right locations for the stuff that's existing on site. So I think it has value right from the get-go of a project all the way through the end. And even when facility management comes in to you know, maintain the facilities. And I love Danielle's mentioning a moment ago of just the the awareness piece or the the education and training part of it too, because as we figure out how to address some hesitation within different organizations or alternatively trying to understand, you know, how exactly we can help in, in build these skill sets within our organizations, the training piece becomes ever so important in just making people aware of what's actually possible and available. I've spoken to so many people who had a 10-year-old opinion on a piece of technology that was available. And that was a fair understanding and perspective 10 years ago, but the progress and innovation of you know the hardware and the software and how all these tools communicate has moved forward. And so it's always great to step back and revisit something with one of your staff and say, hey, I know you put a VR headset on, you know, in 2011, but how about I hand you something that we've rolled out in the last year because the light bulbs turn on and people get pretty excited. Yeah, I, and I, I think, you know, kind of rolling that out amongst our teams, Sue, Danielle, I don't know about, about your teams, but I think starting out with 360 photos for, you know, just documentation, something as simple as that for a record, it's so unbelievably simple and then you start rolling in other technologies with that and it just becomes they don't really have to do anything extra to be able to utilize a lot of this. And it starts the ball rolling with technology, I think, with different project staff, different executives and so forth. Yeah, I think that's very true. And you just need that initial spark, right, about getting the team motivated or 
some lessons learned from past projects or whatever that might be for that particular technology. I think these days, you know, drywall taping and finishing is a big deal where people are trying to use robots to be doing that. They might not be perfect yet, but they are going to get there. And ideally, you know, it's that patience that we need to have. Yes, today it's not perfect, but five years down the line, it, it'll be perfect. And the fact that you can get productivity and you can get that even when there are labor shortages, that's going to be immense, right? And that's the chance we need to give the industry and let them continue doing that innovation. Otherwise, we won't see that progress continue over a course of time. I think that's really important. And from the perspective of just people getting educated, I think the trainings, I mean, these webinars or not Eric mentioned this is not a webinar. So It's not a webinar. So, uh, <laughs> these talks and all these other things that are happening in the industry, that's just mind-blowing, right? Because 10 years ago, who would have thought, right? 10 years ago, this was all like, yeah, no, this is just rocket science. But now it's our day-to-day life, and that's what we breathe in and out. So absolutely, Eric, that was that's really true. Like We have to train and we have to talk about it so that people can understand the potential that technology has and what we do. And I think it's just that the perspective and potential is so huge because as you set everybody's expectations appropriately on what they're going to get from it, I think that has a big element too. And I, Daniel, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here a little bit, but something I've learned recently with regards to some of the robotics implementations is it's not necessarily perfection that you're shooting for, it's predictability and consistency. So if you can get this constant streamline where you go, okay, I know exactly how long this robot's going to do this portion of my scope of work, you can plan around that. But if it's peaks and valleys and you're un- uncertain of actually what's going to be implemented on the job site, that's a whole lot harder to qualify for your staff. If you disagree with that, that's okay. Feel free to check me on it. But it's <laughs> it's it's something that's interesting as we deploy and implement these these different technologies. Yeah, I, I think that you're spot on. I do agree with you there. I think that's one of the technologies that I think is really exciting, but I think we're not ready for it yet. We have to be able to better predict those peaks, right? And those those valleys and, and figure out where we can use robotics to make the most difference and to increase that efficiency. One of the things that's a constant concern that I hear about up in the Northeast where I am is that we don't educate our subcontractors enough about the potential of robotics, right? They think we're just looking to take jobs away, but actually this could allow them to be more efficient and then therefore could create more job opportunities for their teams, their crews. And we need to think about how fast layout could be if we put a robot in place, for example. But yeah, it's it's really exciting technology. It's really exciting to see where it's going to go. But again, I, I don't know. We've got to figure out those those inconsistencies, I guess, before we go there. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be considered in that in that conversation for sure. It's encouraging to see some of the perspectives starting to change. You alluded to the the job replacement thing, and that was what we always heard first and foremost when augmented reality or artificial intelligence or robotics came up. They go, "Oh, we're we're going to take your job away." And I I hope we can do everybody a service in helping them understand that that's not the intent. And especially as we are challenged so deeply in filling seats at all of our different organizations, whether they're with a subcontractor or a general contractor or vice versa, there's so much room to augment what we're doing and then lend 
people to doing what they do best instead of things that are either more dangerous or at scale that you know just a person can't simply achieve. What I am curious to hear right now is everybody out there, give me a heads up on what your favorite construction technologies or trends are right now. And we got Paul, a PMP, said that sometimes progress over perfection can be a great path forward when the risks have been analyzed. So I think that makes sense. Some plugs of Dusty Robotics here. I'm hearing a lot about their organization. APS and their building apps, building twins or digital twins, a lot more augmented reality with QA and QC. Prefab, which is one of my favorite ones, as we continue to remind everybody that prefab is not simply square miserable boxes and the casework that you're installing to meet the requirements of your RFP that you've been sent. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of cool stuff that I hear about regularly. I'm going to guess some buzzy, some not, which leads into my next question, actually. What construction tech might be a little bit overhyped compared to what's actually feasible in the real world and why? So Digital Twin for me, it's a pet project and I want to see it succeed. However, the more and more I get into it, I feel like we're not talking enough about system interoperability, IT infrastructure in a building to make this successful. Ultimately, how it will impact the lives of the non-tech savvy facilities managers of today versus like 10 years from now, right? So, you know, I've heard some owners say, we really need a new spec section. And I've had other vendors talk about a role, a new role that we create, a master integrator to help with this and help facilitate these discussions. I also think our BIM and our data standards as an industry aren't there and neither is our contract language. There are limitations around data that's shared between owner, designer, contractor. So that's just one that is I'm very passionate about. I, I want to see it succeed, but I just don't think we're there. I honestly agree with that one. And I think To add to it a little bit more, I think owner education on it as well is important because you have so many that just say, I want this, right? They hear, hey, this is is something that the industry is starting to do, like all the big projects, all the big stadiums are doing this, whatever it is. And they're like, oh, okay, give it to me. It's like, okay, well, what do you want? Right. Like, what do you want to use this for? Like, what's your, what's your goal with it? There's so many more questions and I think education that needs to go towards ownership as well that will help bring that forward for the industry as a whole as well. You know, um, what's funny is whatever you guys just said in the last 45 seconds is exactly the kind of discussion I am having deja vu on when we spoke about BIM 10 (laughs) years ago. That's exactly how it was, right? People did not know what they wanted it for, why they wanted to use it. And then slowly we had these lessons learned and we heard more and more. And I think, Daniel, that's our plan for the next five years is fine tuning that and going through that, right? To to get Digital Twin to where BIM is today in Digital Twin's format five years later. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I think we can learn from our friends in the United Kingdom on that because their their BIM standards are far more rigorous. And I'm seeing similar expectations in Singapore and some other parts of APAC as well. So I I'm hopeful for the day where we have kind of a blanket standardization across our you know, industry in North America, not to be draconian, but more so in the sense of everybody is on an apples to apples playing field in a way that we might not be right now. And Danielle, I'm, I'm right there with you. I love the concept of digital twins. And it's something I talk about fairly frequently, but it comes with all the caveats that you had shared. It's 
educating your owner on what's actually feasible and what do you want? You see that meme floating around. It's like, what do you want? What do you want? And you just want to shake them and say, like, please tell me with some specificity, because without that, you're just kind of shooting from the hip. But it's it's an entire process. And if everybody's not on board, we're going to struggle a bit. And I think you're also absolutely right. Our, our typical contract vehicles are most certainly not our friends in the realm of trying to create some of these digital twins that we're leaning forward, which is why I'm so excited about things like integrated project delivery and some of the more alternate and progressive building methods that we're seeing. So I love that answer. I, I think your assessment is spot on. Andrew, how about you? What do you think out there in the world right now is a bit overhyped compared to uh, what's actually feasible in the world? I think it's a lot, and I, I almost hate to say it a little bit, but I think robotics in some aspects, right? Like, I'm all for it. And we've had this conversation in, in my office just as a talking point over lunch countless times. But how are these going to function when you have something like the robotic dog that's going to walk around and laser scan your building for you? Well, how really, how clean is your job site that it can just roam around on its own and have a clear path across around the whole building on a small footprint. That's probably not that hard, but when you start building truly huge projects, you know, stadiums, airports, really large convention centers, how does it path at this point with, we all know our subs aren't always that leave the job site as, as clean as it could be, right? There's always stuff laying around. And then as well, when you have robots that can put your hangers in for you, drill for hangers, how is that going to, you know, you, you have flutes, you can't put a hanger right on the edge of a flute. How's it going to adjust on its own for that? I just think it's going to get there. It's just right now, I don't know. I don't know if some of those aspects of robotics is there yet. And it's cost prohibitive, right? Like it's not, Very, yeah. the robotics are not accessible to a typical job, a typical right. project team or client. So that's definitely, that was on my list as well. And it's a fair shake to, to have the, regardless of what technology that you're looking to adopt, making sure that you have scope and scale and it's feasible as far as what you start adopting at your organization. And the cost factor is huge. I think part of that too is focusing where exactly do you find or where are you going to get benefit? And if you're a smaller general contractor that doesn't have the budget to you know buy 10 robots and say, we're going to do this with our drywall now or whatever that might be, you have to have an honest shake. It's like, where, where are those improvements in productivity going to be found? Is it being a bit better about our data hygiene? Is it applying more clear standards to our processes with some explanation of why nobody wants to be dictated as to what they're told. And there's probably a middle ground there, but I think finding those appropriate low hanging fruit, if you're not ready to take the leap into something quite so advanced is, you know, a fair position to have, especially if you feel that something hasn't been fully proven out in a way that's going to benefit your organization. I think that goes to across the whole tech spectrum in our industry with everything that's coming out, all this new technology that's being developed. All of it is relatively pretty expensive, you know, some not quite as much as others, but it's becoming more of a matter of, all right, which do we want to put our money towards? Like we can't anymore feasibly do everything on every project. Obviously prices will eventually come down as they always do. But for right now, I think we're on the, the bleeding edge of some really amazing stuff tech wise that our industry can do. But unfortunately, it's a matter of picking and choosing what you're going to try to focus on as a company. 
And what a wild change in our industry, if you look back 10 years ago, as far as the available <laughs> tools and technologies that we had, yeah. simply because the innovation curve has been so incredible, whether it's with the startups or some larger organizations making very bold choices in the technology that they create. But even though the decision paralysis can be a bit overwhelming when you're trying to decide what thing you feel like adopting, always coming back to starting small and focusing exactly where you want to be, I think that's the win. And then you get to start scaling and building out your proof case. And you know, suddenly you've got a full tech team and everybody's got digital technology innovator in their title or something cool like that. But that's definitely not something that's going to happen tomorrow, especially if you're starting from scratch. But I think the big onus there is just there is incentive to start making some of these changes, whether it's with process or software or technology that you're adopting. And don't feel too overwhelmed. Just your focus into something that you know will enact change or bring change and shouldn't overwhelm your entire organization. Sue, how about you? What, uh, what is one thing you think is a bit overhyped right now and why? I think that data interpretation right now, it's something that the industry is trying to do based on the past data. But I feel like, and I'm talking about pre-construction perspective, like I come to Eric, I t- ask you, hey, Eric, what does it take to build a 10,000 square feet hospital project in the Bay Area? And, and you should be able to go back into your past projects and look at them and come back and tell me what it should take, right? But ideally, since our data has not been consistent throughout, I feel that process is not set yet from a pre-construction perspective. And I think that has a lot of potential in the future. And that's why I'm like, hey, we need to standardize it right now. It's not just CSI divisions, but it's also the interpretation because now a lot of the information goes into estimating software And we need to make sure the softwares are all talking correctly. And we go from there. I was just going to bring this up real quick is back in the day, we used to have an estimating software, used to have a project management software, and then we would have a billing software. Sometimes the billing and project management software were not the same system, right? So now our information was jumping through three platforms from three different vendors. And then everybody spent a good amount of time where the project manager sometimes the project engineer and your estimator are all in there at some point of time during the life of the project, spending hours making sure the data is right and spitting out the correct information to the next software. And it wasn't a manual dump or an export, right? It would be like hand entering phase codes for each item in your project. Now, to think about it, we came from there and now all of a sudden, my estimating software dumps into my operation software and the operation software also does the billing portion of the project, right? It depends. We have all sorts of different softwares, but they typically end up doing the same thing. And that itself is priceless. And I think that is working. Like right now in the industry, that is working. And I'm really excited and happy about it. And I and I want to see more of that as we go through it, because there are other softwares where even the estimating and the project management and everything is done in the same system. Right. And and big companies, right? For example, Scanska, right? Y'all probably have an IT application specialist team sitting there. Hey, Daniel, is this what you want? You want this cell to do this and then the next cell to do that? You're able to maybe provide that support. But smaller companies cannot do that that easily. And I think that's where, you know, the software technology on a whole matters because now you should have the ability to scale. And the software should be able to talk to what the small company needs versus a mid-sized company versus a large company. So I know you wanted me to t- talk to you about what did, doesn't work, but I ended up with what works. 
<laughs> and that's okay because it's it's such a fair point. And as we start marching closer to platforms in a bit more of a consolidation in our technology, I think that data flow, that is the conversation. That's where the future is. We've been fortunate enough to capture this massive quantities of data. And when our standards aren't necessarily apples to apples from person to person or project to project, it makes that large picture visibility a bit more difficult to interpret. And it also introduces some current concerns over trust of that data. And I think early on, people got burned by bad dashboarding and some early iterations of some of these technologies, you know, five, 10 years ago. And so they go, I don't trust that because I made a decision on that and I got in trouble. And I feel like that's a story that's changing now, which leads into my next question, actually. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how your teams are managing that volume of data that's being generated and creating that actionable data for your teams. And I, I think the key word for me is actionable because you can have a dashboard full of stuff, but if it doesn't give you something that allows you to make decisions from it, I mean, if your owner wants that info, like that's great, but I don't know if that's necessarily the greatest dashboard for your project teams or people back in the office who are trying to keep track of you know multiple projects at once. So Andrew, I'm going to throw this one at you first. <laughs> How is uh, your team handling this? So currently in one of our biggest markets, we have, I guess it, we have dashboards that are displayed that are giving you every bit of information that, that we can on multiple projects especially when you have multiple teams sharing the same office. So you can go in, you can see where a building is, what floors are being worked on, what's going on where. Dashboarding really, yes, it has its flaws in it, especially in the past it has, but it's gotten so much better. You know, that is honestly, if, if you take the time to do it and develop it, it is a truly indispensable way to disseminate information especially with as customizable as it is, you can choose on your own to go in and dig deeper into the numbers in a certain area just by clicking on it. And I feel that introduces more equity into the the access to the data than we've had historically as well. If I look at, you know, when I was still working for GCs, everything was on a shared folder, on a shared drive, in a nested folder with a dead link, and then another nested folder, and then six versions of underscore final. And you look at that and go, Hmm, I wonder which one of these <laughs> spreadsheets that I'm using <laughs> is going to give me the accurate data that we have. But the the meaningful access and, and equal access, I think, whether even if somebody's not necessarily gatekeeping deliberately, but just the structure of the data itself in the past lended to those challenges, I think it's a lot more encouraging for our staff across the board. Sue, how is your team tackling this part of the, the data conversation? Yeah, so I think as far as dashboards are concerned to display data, I think it's a very intentional conversation that we have to have with our teams on a weekly or bi-monthly or monthly basis based on what the discussion is about. A project could be a monthly discussion versus you know, status of projects across the arena. Like say we're doing 15 projects that we should be discussing that also monthly maybe, or sometimes bi-weekly, depending on what the status or which part of construction these projects are <clears throat> from a meaningful perspective. The idea is that, you know, your leaders in the company, right, or people who are getting most impacted by the financials on a day-to-day basis from the perspective of, hey, why did we lose some here? What, what happened here? What happened there? Those conversations really give us more insight into what your X's and Y's are in your dashboard. And if you don't have that conversation, 
sometimes it makes sense for the first six months of the project to track certain things. And then the next six months, you're not tracking those anymore. You want to track some other information. And knowing that, having those discussions and then modifying your dashboard is essential, right? So data is as meaningful as what we put in, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And I'm really a big believer of that because sometimes you have an inexperienced person come in and they will look at what you have and they will have no clue because they just haven't been on job sites enough or had had enough lessons learned to be able to talk about that data meaningfully. But you, who has been there in the industry for a long time, you know exactly why you're showing that because you probably fell face down on some project and now you want to be careful that that never happens again. But to explain that to your teammates and to be on the same page is key. And I think that's really the key essence of using your dashboards properly because there are lots of, again, there are lots of softwares, right, that are tracking this information. It could be simple Excel spreadsheets to a lot of others, but it'll be as meaningful as we want it to be. And nothing's stopping us from getting there, but we have to have that set of meetings to establish that and to maintain it, just like anything else. We have to maintain those dashboards, right? And I think that's key, Eric. That's really how we are doing it. And we strive to do it on a regular basis. And and that's where we want the industry to head to as well. You're taking the words out of my mouth on that one because I've said this before and it's the education piece with regards to data standardization isn't a draconian conversation. It's even just simply helping somebody understand why we're capturing a particular piece of data. And so if you've got a, a piece of software or technology that has six fields that you know, a project manager or project engineer has to fill out and they don't understand the nuance of it, they might just plunk in some garbage and just go, Bloop, because this lets me get to the next field that I do understand or know or care about. And so I, I think you can go a bit over the top with standardization in some way because it starts to feel burdensome for your staff. But I think making sure everybody knows the what and why and how as far as how you're you know, capturing that data has a big impact both on the person's understanding of the tool that you've handed them, but creating that meaningful big picture data that you might not necessarily have had access to or had confidence in because it wasn't consistent across all the different people that were adding data to you, whatever tools that you might be using. So Danielle, how, uh, how are things looking over at Skanska with regards to data? Are you capturing data or no? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, there, this is a big focus area for us. There is a, a robust data strategy in place and it's really being led by our data working group. Um, we've also launched an analytics community. So anyone interested in creating dashboards can learn from that community. And we're trying to put some standards around that as well. And then some knowledge sharing networks to, to help with that. And, and knowledge sharing is one thing I think we all need to touch on as well at some point. With that comes data literacy training and goals. We've asked everybody to take a look at incorporating some data goal into their goal plan for 2023. Um, we have created the data lake and are working on that, that standardization. But as Sue said earlier, that hygiene really enables interoperability because our systems are not all under, we're not one system right now, but how do we help think about maybe even automation down the road and automating those clicks between the systems to, to get data from point A to point B to point C? So as part of that, Sue, you touched on it as well. Like we are a data working group. I was interviewed as part of this, but not part of the, the interviews. They interviewed what we are calling persona groups, right? And they also assigned liaisons to each office to help 
create the dashboards that are going to be the most useful and just really come up with a plan for moving forward. And what does continuous improvement look like as we revisit those dashboards to make sure we're still tracking relevant data and that it's still driving more educated decisions from our project teams. I feel like the the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now as I am a bit of a, a data nerd, self-admitted at this point, because if you're out there listening, we released a report about a year and a half ago, maybe longer. I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore. But we released a report called Harnessing the Data Advantage of Construction. We, we put that together with FMI, and it really dug into some of the nuances of why are there data gaps? Where are people struggling? What are those challenges? And the biggest alarming question for me was the, and I couldn't cite the stats, stats off the top of my head, were how many organizations don't have a formalized data strategy to go with the amount of data that they're capturing? And that doesn't have to be super extensive, but finding those focus areas and putting those guidelines in place has a huge, huge ROI. And of course, I'm not surprised that Scansco would be doing something along those lines, given the scale of the organization. But it's encouraging to hear more people talking about that and just talking about that meaningful data strategy because as we digitize further in our industry and we look at how we you know align on different platforms or different tools and technologies without that strategy in place and hopefully before you've gone down the the rabbit hole of acquiring all the data in the history of time it's going to be a whole lot more challenging to get that meaningful data and meaningful information and insights to your teams and doing it earlier and sooner generally is a big win compared to rolling in late stage and saying, okay, we have all this data and all these processes. How can we make this make more sense? It's a, a bit more difficult at the after the fact. So I want to wrap up with one final question I had prepped before I throw a couple audience questions your way. And that's going to be... I'd love to hear each of you share one prediction about which construction trends we might be talking about in 10 years from today. And Sue, how about uh, you go first on this one? All right. I think I am going to dive back into my favorite one, which is basically having good information in our estimates, which means for me, you know, when I say demolition and Eric, you say demolition, we mean the same thing. We do not mean abatement. We do not mean anything else. And so all of us, when we say demolition, we have exactly the same idea in our heads. And so from that perspective, 10 years from now, when I say, hey, demolition, yeah, it costs $10 per square foot. And you guys are all close to that or near that in Bay Area. Then I'll be like, hey, that, that makes good sense, you know, because we have the right data. We have the right scope. It's not so common these days. And that's why when we go back and ask Eric, hey, Eric, what does it take to build that healthcare building where we started out the conversation today with? you can have the right information because we would all be spitting in the right information into our estimate. And so we would spit out the right information from our database when we are done with the projects. So I think just the data management from an estimating perspective to be able to predict future project costs is a big deal in the pre-construction industry. And I think having done that or being being um, you know privy to that information and being able to give <clears throat> logical predictions in the future is where the industry is heading towards in the next 10 years. And we're going to see more of it and it's going to be more accurate than it is today. 
And I, I think that comes right back to communication at its core. I was having a very meaningful conversation about lean construction last week, actually, and communication came up pretty frequently, which makes sense given the topic of lean construction. But when you're talking about, do you understand what I mean when I say demolition? That is such a, a huge element of ensuring success. And so what I say might not be interpreted exactly the same from person to person to person. So any tools or technology or honestly just standard communication methods that you can employ that really narrow those gaps and ensure that when I say Apple, you don't think orange, or when I say demo, you think abatement, like that goes a long way. So I think we'll still be having that conversation and hopefully our, our technology choices will get us a little bit further to that being less ambiguous. Yeah. And, and you know, from that perspective, when I say demo, you might think a whole building and all I'm thinking is the insides of some building. So there you go. Right there, we start <laughs> off with a disconnect. <laughs> yep. There's a, there's a lot of room for accidental scope creep in that conversation. <laughs> Andrew, how about you? What's, uh, what's one trend you think we're going to be talking about in 10 years from now? Yeah, I think it's going to be data management, you know, and I think that's going to cross the entire spectrum of a job, most likely with AI, but it's going to, I think we're going to be tracking lead times versus schedule versus your progress tracking. All of that is going to talk to each other and it's going to notify you, hey, we're ahead of schedule here, but the lead time on this has increased due to some factor and it's going to give you warnings in your schedule, right? That, hey, we need to, we need to shuffle the schedule around, make things work. You know, I think we're going to be walking around the job site as well with, our, with a camera on our hard hat still. But it's going to be tied to our phone. And when it sees that something is out of place or, you know, not on schedule, you're going to get a notification of it as you're just walking around having conversations with your project staff. It's all going to work behind the scenes to just kind of integrate everything into one for us, I think. And there's a there's a huge safety conversation that comes with that as well. I mean, even the implication implementation of a lot of the the safety focused technology we have today has made huge steps. I mean, AI can analyze ten thousand photos to look for safety hazards, whereas a site superintendent can only do so much because they're only one person. So that that's a great example of that scale we were talking about before, as far as where augmentation has a tremendous benefit and is actually you know here today. And uh, I'm also very hopeful with what you're talking about regarding schedules. Hopefully the printed out Gantt chart and say, here's our schedule. Oops, uh, things changed so much for our just-in-time delivery. I think we're you know, stepping away from that already, but there's there's a lot of room for very interesting things to happen. And I'm, I'm eager to see where we're at in 10 years. All right, Danielle, how about yourself? What is one trend in 10 years you think we're going to be talking about? I definitely hope we're talking about AI and the connected job site, but I will, I'll take it in a different direction. Something we haven't talked about yet is 3D printing. And I know we've been talking about 3D printing for a while, but 3D printed building or infrastructure components, I hope we, we continue to see more evolution here. I just think it's, it's really cool and could be really useful. And so that's my hope. It's maybe wishful thinking, but I'm really excited to see what happens with that. And I think we're trending that direction right now. I, I had a really wonderful conversation on a podcast last year about prefab specifically, and we're starting to trend towards more meaningful standards tied to prefabrication, which is one of the barriers that we've struggled with in the past as far as how do I certify this is good to go if there's no standard that I can apply to it and say everybody can confidently 
feel that we're you know in a safe facility. But the scale of 3D printing, I think even steps past the buildings that we're putting together. It's now it's components or, hey, are we using the fiber from the wood that was used in shipment to 3D print some furniture? Or if you're out in a very remote side, I'm thinking in you know countries where they might have little supply chain at all or even just the supply chain issues we're having right now, you know, you snap a door handle off and you 3D print a new one or some small part that fits into your building ecosystem. And I think that's starting to happen some today, but the the prevalence I feel like will be considerably more so in a decade. So I, I love that answer. And it, it leans actually to my next question. And I've got, I'm going to ask two from our audience, even though I know we're a little bit over time. The question is, I'm interested in seeing how the trends of offsite and modular construction are taking hold in current project portfolios and what engineering and architectural teams can do to better prepare for these demands? I love that question because I'm a prefab nerd. One thing is getting involved early from a design and engineering perspective. It takes the education of the owner or the client to be actually able to do something where they want prefab. So they get the design team and the engineers involved early as well as some key contractors, right? Your general contractor and some key subs involved early enough to be able to design those components because, for example, your prefab might impact structural. And so you have to make those decisions early enough so that your prefab components can be fabricated. Also, prefab is is very, I would say, zone dependent, like in the sense in Bay Area or in Northern California, where I do all of my work, we are very union heavy, right? So we have to think of that and, and the benefits that we have from a union perspective versus some other places that are very non-union heavy and the benefits of prefab there are seemingly a lot, a lot of times greater just because of the cost differential between union, non-union. But at the same time, from a safety perspective and logistics perspective, it's definitely tougher to build a project in San Francisco than I would say somewhere out there in Arizona or Texas, right? So all of that and early discussion with the design team and the engineers, I think make a good setup to be able to do prefab, say five years down the line for the project or even 10 years down from the project. And I'm talking about big projects, right? So that's where the scale and the money and everything comes to fruition when you do a project of that size and you're able to have those discussions early enough to make it meaningful. I think that's a I think it's a great point though, including the subs and GCs in that because you know you have to have all your subs on board early enough or completely rely on your design team to get everything coordinated in time as well so that you know it's gonna fit, it can be built, and they're not trying to figure out not trying to figure it out in the field in a warehouse when they're dealing with a, I don't know, a 10 foot section of an MEP corridor, right? So yeah, you definitely, we got to get everyone involved a lot earlier than what I think we do as an industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree there. I have lots of prefab thoughts. Yeah, no, t- just to feed on what Andrew said too, just really thinking through and getting involved with the early coordination. It's something that we can't do with every project, but when we can and we have the opportunity to look at design coordination efforts versus construction coordination efforts, really taking in those, those prefab components into play. And the other thing that I, I've recently started thinking about about prefab is about how it could help to meet your sustainability goals. 
So maybe taking that into consideration as either a designer or, or anyone who's, who's really getting involved. But I think there's some opportunity there that we're not thinking about all the time. Yeah, I think the scope of what's possible with prefab is we're starting to talk about it in a way more meaningful way than we had in the past. As I kind of joked earlier, it was all, you know, our casework and just, you know, simple stuff that was prefabricated to meet some, you know, RFP requirements or something. But you can build very beautiful structures with prefabrication. It comes back to what all three of you are alluding to, though, is the planning to achieve that is really the 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 most important aspect of it. And especially when you think about hospital facilities or life sciences or some of these types of structures that either have repeatable scope of elements where you get to build out your kit of parts or the certification process is something that's already been dialed up and dialed out and certified has huge value for your owners and then brings facilities out to operating speed at a scale you might not with just a brand new ground up construction without that pre-certification. So there's a ton of things to consider and think about. So for everybody out there listening and watching and tuned in today, I just want to say first and foremost, thanks for bearing with us as we had a little bit of a late start today, but I'm so glad that you joined us for our first live streamed episode of our Digital Builder podcast. If you ever have any questions for me, or if you have a guest suggestion, you can reach out on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter at builder underscore digital. You can also watch our whole back catalog. Everything's on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other major podcast player. And if you do enjoy the show, I'd sincerely appreciate it if you threw a, a rating at us. I'm biased. Maybe five stars seems appropriate, but it does help us out on the back end. And on that final note, goodbye. <laughs>